Mary, I want to set a scene for you. Okay, I'm ready. You come home. You turn on the television. Mm-hmm. Ozzy Osbourne's family is on the screen. Oh, boy. Anna Nicole Smith is on the screen. You look at the people cover of the man of the year. Ben Affleck is featured in a side profile. Oh, my God. No donkey's cup. You then look at your Rolling Stone magazine. Justin Timberlake is shirtless. No. Last but not least, you have a CD on the counter and it's Christina Aguilera's Dirty. Two R's. Mary, what year is it? Could it be um, a time of great depravity and innocence? 2002? You got it. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Wow, Allison, like you've really captivated my imagination by taking us to 2002. It's like there's so many images running through my head. Like I'm sort of traumatized. I'm reliving it all. Like some of there are parts of me where I'm like, did that happen? I remember this period quite well. So this was my sophomore year of high school. And so I mentioned that partially for context that we were just a smidge older in our lifetimes for Kaya, who we're talking about today. But it also seems to be quite a bit of a time of awakening post 9-11. There was a lot of post 9-11 awakenings. Um, You mentioned Christine Aguilar. I went to that tour. I went to the Dirty Tour. There was a brief tour that she went on with Justin Timberlake when he was emerging as a solo artist. And I think he was like, I don't know if I can draw just me. So they went on a tour together inexplicably and they would alternate who got to be the headliner every night. So when I saw when I saw them, she was the headliner and that felt correct. I'll just say that like he opened, he was doing his Michael Jackson cosplays he did on album one. And you failed to mention, but we talked off air that 2002 is also the year when Michael Jackson dangled his baby out of the hotel window. Like truly the level of chaos of that year is impossible for us to recapture. And I just want to say like there is a reality show on now. It's a it's a history of reality TV that Andy Cohen is putting together on the E network, which I did watch the first episode of. And I just I can't recommend it because I'm sorry the structure is impossible to follow. The entire first episode I thought was a promo for the episode to come. And then about halfway through I was like, "Oh, this is it." Like there's no history, there's no gravitas. I was like, give us this show, we could do it. I literally casually, with kind of no context, my brother was flying, he was on a trip this week, and I forget what came up about the Jersey Shore and no one else on this group text had seen it but Rick and I and I kind of didn't care. And I was like, Rick, you're kind of acting like Snooky when she wrote that beautiful anonymous letter on their local public library computer. Do you remember that? I don't think I could ever forget it. <laughs> oh my God. I, I think that was one of the most fascinating moments. And I also just really appreciate that that was a different time. Like now, of course, she would use a notes app or she would do something very different. But 2002 is really when some of the pop stars, you know, whose autobiographies and different products that we've been kind of examining from a different light and saying, oh, yeah, you really went through it in the 90s and early 2000s. This is when they kind of were all considered culturally grown up. And there was a lot of chaos, let's be honest. I mean, Ben Affleck was still believed to be functionally hot at that period. I mean, this was... He still is. Okay, Allison, hear me out on this. And I understand that I can't come at this with like a straight culture attraction and level. Like I can look at him and I'm like, he's 
handsome. Like he's attractive. I can appreciate that. But when you take it to a place of a full body back tattoo, like I'm sorry, but there is a line in his life where it's like pre-back tattoo, post-back tattoo. You really can't come back from that. Every time I see him now, I think two thoughts. One, he's still beautiful. Even as he's like struggling to hold three cat like cascading like ice donkeys over his arms. I'm like, that man is still beautiful. He seems like he's hurt right now, but he's beautiful. And I know that tattoo is under those clothes. You know what I mean? It's like, even when you're not seeing it, you're seeing it. Well, I think you don't unsee it. It's hard. And it's like, I'm, I, he's still someone I root for inexplicably, but I'm just kind of like, what's happening with you? I think we have that question to ask of many people. And I want to know, circa 2000, circa 2001, the world really did seem to change in very profound ways very quickly, right? So we were kind of just becoming teenagers when 9-11 occurred. And I know that we do have listeners for whom that's a historical event only, right? It's not a lived experience. And that's something that's really kind of quickly changing with college cultures and all those things. But I look back and there really were these diversion threads where in response to that moment of national trauma and, you know, the Islamophobia, the violence that followed, you had country music really becoming more conservative in certain threads. And you had a lot of like hyper patriotic content coming out. And then you had Britney, Justin and others, Christina saying, it's me now. There was people who were like, I want to celebrate American independence. And then there were, frankly, a lot of women performers who were like, I'm going to celebrate my independence. <laughs> like, yeah. I will never forget Mariah Carey showing up at the 9-11 tribute telethon, singing Hero, which inexplicably was sort of on theme. But she kind of was like, oh, like, yes, she was feeling the moment. And obviously, everyone was thinking about it all the time. But there was a piece of these artists, like, like taking part in these concerts and these telethons where it was like, do you remember why you're here? Because sometimes people were like kind of doing their own thing, but you're right. Like it was especially a time for women who I think had been in groups, who had been somewhat controlled by managers, whatever you want to say, coming into their own, feeling themselves at a very like weird time in our shared past. Well, I just said like off air that I read a report over the weekend that was sort of preparing college admissions professionals to kind of understand the profile of students applying to be in the class of 2025. And one of the things they said was 9-11 is a historic event for all of these people. They And also they have no living memory of a time before internet and like not even dial up internet. Like these people never had to deal with the crisis of trying to be on the like the computer and your grandma calls and her voice is coming inexplicably through your computer and you're yelling at her and she can't hear you because you're trying to talk to someone on buddy chat. Then you get thrown off and it's like your social life is like up in a whirl and like pure chaos. Like kids today won't know that. I just wanna say also in 2002, Prince Philip was also alive. I mean, people are saying he just passed. The Queen Mom passed right around the time that this right. Kaya series was produced. We haven't forgotten about that. This is long living people. I do think it's really fascinating looking back at 2001, 2002, the extent to which there really was a very intense push towards 
patriotism in like a very vague way, like right, the prevalence of American flags and then uh, the way that Islamophobia was on the rise and the way that there was very terrible treatment and persecution of particularly people who practice Islam in the US. And as this was happening, someone looked across a boardroom and was like, we do the indigenous American girl now right now not a we moment do it, we do it we right do now. it right now do not delay like literally somebody came back from a lunch break having ordered some freedom fries perhaps listening to a somewhat tragic charity single issued by paul mccartney called also freedom maybe listening to courtesy of the red white and blue prop perhaps the most regrettable 9-11 sonic moment yeah. um and they were like you know what's really needed right now i know people have been saying we're not diverse enough but we're going to take it back to the egg, so to speak. We're actually going to do an indigenous doll right now. Like there's absolutely nothing going on that would complicate our view of this, our conception or the politics of the choices we might make in designing this. It's happening now. There's an interesting aspect to this too. And we'll talk about kind of choices that were made in the creation of Kaya. And she's situated in 1764. And the world that she lives in has traces and experiences of imperialism. For example, there's a character who's already come into contact with smallpox, even though she hasn't come into contact so much with people carrying it. She has still had this experience. And it is kind of an interesting, in retrospect, turn because there were people at that time There was a strand of people pushing war and global sort of interference in the Middle East. And there was also that turn of like looking inward. Mm -hmm. And this book is really set in a time that isn't free of violence, but is kind of isolationist in its own strange way. Yeah, I think it does. It it does show a response in some ways that we see culturally at times of great stress and particularly when there's stress within and between nation states to go internal and also to kind of romanticize a utopian vision of an imagined past. This does not always involve, you know, the depiction of Native Americans, but I do think that it's telling that this is the shape it's taken at this particular moment and that the story we're getting is not even at this point of between contact between even Native American groups. It's like literally one group in isolation and really within one, like a kinship group within that group as well. Like it's actually quite isolated within that group. Mary, are we doing this? I mean, are you ready for this? This is the first American Girl doll Alice and I have never, we both have never read these books before today. We did not grow up with Kaya. At that point, at this point in time, I probably thought I was too cool, like aspiring to buy stuff from Claire's. I don't know what I was doing in 2002, but you know, let's just do this, Allison. I'm ready. So, Allison, I just have to say, you know, this pandemic has hit me really hard. But one of the things that's really, truly getting me through this, and this is not a joke, is my addiction to cereal. Oh, I've I've known that. I know you have customized spoons. I know that cereal is a really big part of your life. It's a huge part of my life. And, you know, listeners, if I've never shared this, and this was probably a mistake, is I used to eat cereals that were totally just sugar to the point that Rice Krispie Treat cereal was my favorite cereal. As is known, I got eight boxes of it for my 30th birthday. I ate it for three meals in a row, ended up lying on the floor, thought I would die and was like, is this how it ends for me? Not, I mean, not to give you a bleak image, but you know, that was my past. 
So there is another way. There is something called Magic Spoon, which kind of helps you get to the place where you were when you were a child, when you maybe ate cereal blissfully not knowing anything about carbs or sugar. Perhaps wow. you did. Wow. But the wonderful thing about Magic Spoon is that it has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs. Each serving has only 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. So if this sounds good to you, which does sound very good to me, we want you to go to magicspoon.com slash American Girls Pod to grab a variety pack and try this today. And be sure to use our promo code American Girls Pod at checkout to save $5 off your order. And real ones know, and this is like a real like thing that I do. I love to mix different kinds of cereals and you create your own little flavors. So I just want to give a tip out there to the real ones who try this. You need to mix peanut butter with cocoa. And if you do that, you're going to be making yourself essentially a what you can tell yourself is a healthy version of a peanut butter cup. And it's beautiful. It's so, so good. And Magic Spoon is so confident in this product and perhaps my preferred flavor pairing. It's backed with an 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash americangirlspod and use the code americangirlspod to save $5 off. And thank you to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode and delighting my stomach. So I think perhaps we did not grow up with Kaya, but Kaya will grow up with us, if I may. Wow. So I want to give us a few different, slightly different descriptions that are used for this book because there really isn't a ton in terms of plot summary with these particular kind of snapshots by publishers. But this book is set in 1764 when Kaya and her family reunite with other Nez Perce Indians to fish for the red salmon. Kaya learns that bragging, even about her swift horse, can lead to trouble. So this is one, I just wanna give you one other because I think it's helpful to have slightly more information than one sentence. Kaya dreams of racing her beautiful mare steps high. Her father warns her that the horse isn't ready, but when a pesky boy insults steps high, Kaya accepts his challenge to race. As they ride, Kaya loses sight of her little brothers, who are twins. Her carelessness earns her a nickname that her friends won't let her forget. I'm just going to say, because that is kind of a, a harsh feedback summary, Kaya saves a life in this book. I mean, I don't know why that's not the lead. You know, like, why isn't that not the title? Like, meet Kaya, semicolon, she saved a life. Or of a later time, a different reference, like how to save a life. The Kaya story, meet Kaya. This book is by Janet Beeler Shaw. I'm invoking the first name. I'm Wow. You're taking us to the middle name even. Wow, wow, wow. I'm going for, for the way that she puts her full name in something. So... Just to state the obvious, because I do think that it's important, this book was written in collaboration with people who are part of the Nez Perce today. However, it was not written from their perspective, and it was not written by someone who has that affiliation. 
And just to kind of put this all out there early on, Janet Shaw is the author of the Kirsten series, so she is involved very early on. And just to note, there's a pretty big gap. So those books were done in 1986. These would have been done in the early 2000s. She's kind of called off the bench. And let's just be candid, like a lot changed in that time in terms of how they took on authors and different teams. Josefina being a recent example, there was a really big team that consulted on that book. But again, actually, they did go with one of the original canonical authors to write Kaya's story. Do you think Kevin Costner was like, I'm ready to do it? And they were like, no, 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 we don't want you. And he was like, no, 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 guys, seriously, I can do this. No problem. And they were like, you're a white man. And he was like, have you seen Dances with Wolves? I can do this. I don't, I think he could not have been stopped. Kaya has kind of, I think, an interesting genealogy in that she is the eighth overall historical character, but Kaya is the first of the B forever. So in 2002, when there was kind of a pivot in marketing away from historical characters to B forever, notably they have gone back to the historical moniker, she was the first one that got put out under that mantle. So she was really, Mm. honestly, more than anyone else we've talked about, part of a change in the way that the company thought about the way it would tell girls' historical stories. And I think, too, it's worth pausing on the fact that this is a completely different company now, that Pleasant sold American Girl or Pleasant Company in 1997 for north of $700 million. Important to invoke that number. But, you know, so it's not just that we're in a new century, we're with a new author or former author in a completely new context. There are so many new contexts in that situate us in Kaya's world. Yeah, and Kaya being part of this kind of like new version of the company, So several of the original historical characters get new meat outfits, right? And so they're kind of like trying to change up the way that they're presenting some of the characters. And I think with Kaya, they were trying to respond maybe to some criticisms about not really having as much breath with time period and not telling indigenous stories. And she was marketed early on as the quote, first American girl. Mm -hmm. And part of what's notable about that when we think about her, like maybe in relationship to a Josefina, it's this kind of like predetermined outcome. It's very hard to not think about Kaya as part of a United States story, the way that she's Mm -hmm. pegged as American. Whereas if Kaya was real, she would have no concept of any of this. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think, too, it's also probably harder in a broader frame to situate her in a Western narrative, like any kind of Western structure, whether it's nation state, you know, Christian, broadly speaking, culture, you know, so many different things. Like if Mattel is doing a consumer report on the, you know, average buyer of a Kaya doll, you know, how much is that living in their head as they put the team together to assemble Kaya's world? You know, so how much, in other words, do they want to be true to the histories of the Nez Perce people, but at the same time, you know, make it so that it's legible to girls, mostly probably white girls in 2002, whose parents would likely be buying these dolls. And to that point, because folks who will want to follow along 
Kaya is really also a break in the structure of the books. So they bring back an author, Janet Shaw, who had done Kirsten, right, and kind of was part of setting up these trends, right? Like, what does an American girl's historical birthday look like? I think when Janet heard that they might be changing up the formula, she was like, in case I only get one book, I am going to (laughs) put a lot of plots into that one book. If you remember what Janet put Kirsten through... We had a friend death within the first book. We had a traumatic cross-Atlantic move. We had bears. We had fires. We had raccoons. Honestly, this book is as explosive and as hot. And as I was reading it, I was like, I kind of forgot the power that Janet wields over friends. Kaya almost loses someone very close to her and saves her from drowning and it's not even the heroic book well if you think about it she almost loses three characters say more okay so can we get into the plot of this book a little bit here i would love to because honestly i think that some of the descriptions are unkind about who kaya is as a person and there are some really beautifully textured scenes in this book I do also love that on page nine, Kaya says, that wasn't boasting, just saying what's true. And I don't want to project any kind of particular identity on Kaya. I don't know why I'm stopping now after 62 episodes, but I think what I love about that for her is a lot of this book is Kaya trying to learn from other people how to be on basically what's a family trip. Like they've left, (laughs) they've left where they're from and they are traveling and Kaya takes part in a race. She has to save a life. But also a lot of this is Kaya kind of just feeling herself and having people push her down. Yeah, which that part of the narrative was not great for me. I don't, what I love about American Girl is that it puts girls and young women at the center of their own lives and their life stories. And I don't like the pushback or I guess like the humbling that they think girls need when actually I don't think that that's what's called for or needed. But before we get into that, it does remind me that, you know, sitting down to read this book, this was the first piece of fiction that I've read that features as a central character uh, a Native American young woman. And it did make me think back to what kinds of children's books we did have available to us or even pop culture. So kind of where are you at with that? Like, what were you what were you remembering sitting down with this book about your own exposure to any kind of Native American culture in pop culture growing up? Yeah, I'll just say there's not a lot to be particularly proud of. Right. And I will put that out on the table. So I'm not saying this as a boast. It's just a fact. I read and really enjoyed Indian in the Cupboard. And that is not something that I'm particularly like thrilled to report in 2021, but it's the truth. And I don't want to pretend that it isn't. That was a series that I actually read and and really was absorbed by. There was something really fantastical about it. Now I understand that there are tropes in there. I read several, several books that involved captivity among indigenous people. I can think of several examples of those. I don't think I ever read a book that was from an indigenous person's perspective, nor can I honestly say that I remember reading something and knowing it was written by an indigenous person. 
Yeah, I have a very similar history to yours. Um, To your point, I remember being assigned Indian in the Cupboard in school. So that's where I encountered that. And I remember, I think, enjoying it. Again, like not a proud memory, but just like owning my privilege. And and a lot of the privilege I have around this is that I I wasn't even aware of the absence. And I remember very distinctly kind of feeling my awareness of that when, so when I was growing up, the stuff that I was exposed to were things that my dad watched on TV, like movies he showed to us, like Dancing with Wolves, like not even going there, but like Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, things that are clearly from a white Western perspective or like foreground white characters that have Native Americans like kind of as guest stars in their own territories. Even old episodes of Little House on the Prairie, which we've talked about before, But growing up in Connecticut, I will say we did a Patreon episode on The Witch of Blackbird Pond, which is set in my hometown of Wethersfield. Notable now that that book, which I still treasure, completely has a silence around Native Americans in that space and um, free and enslaved Black people. When I was a teenager, um, we we went to the Pequod Museum, which is in Connecticut, which has like a Native American village, like this is what it would have been like. And they also had a film that shows part of like a, an imagined scene from King Philip's War, which also took place in Wethersfield, Connecticut. And I remember sort of being like, wait a second, putting a timeline together of like, oh, Native Americans were still in that region at the time of like this book that I treasure. Like, how come there are no Native Americans in that book? And that was like a moment of consciousness for me. So I'm really happy that that museum exists and that, you know, I was exposed to it. But just to kind of affirm your point, what we were exposed to was not this. So to what you were saying too, the book, the copy that I have, I think has kind of a telling piece of material culture on it, which is it has a Thanksgiving sticker on the front. And so I think that also tells you, you know, a lot of times when the topic of indigenous history was introduced, in my experience, it would be around Thanksgiving. And something I'm really grateful for with this series is it also takes us to a completely different part of the country. It's situated in what we would think of as the Pacific Northwest on the indigenous homelands of the Nez Perce people. And I kind of appreciated that I got to step outside of some of the narratives that I know, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of historical fiction around indigenous people does tend to be set you know, like a Dear America around Plymouth or those kinds of contexts. And this takes us to a totally different part of the continent and also just situates us in a different time period. We haven't been this early before, 1760s. Yeah, so we're before the founding of the United States. And I like that it takes us far away from what people even associate in their imagination with the United States before it even existed. So in other words, like we're not on the East Coast. We're not in New England. We're not in a, in a colony where people are sort of in their mind thinking like, well, we're almost to the American Revolution or they affiliate it with, say, European culture in their mind. I like that it takes us so far to the West. And I sort of wondered like what it must have been like for Janet Shaw reflecting on her own history with the series and her, with her own issues of representation with indigenous characters, because it's sort of like she gave a singing bird and then literally singing bird disappears halfway through the series. And it's almost as if like she has to flip her own worldview to erase or like to present us with a West in which white people literally never appear. And she has to totally abandon every like trope she might have used to write a pioneer history or a history of the American West in which Americans so-called like 
really figured as white people and your people of European descent are so central. So I found a website really, really helpful, and it has a selection from a book called A Broken Flute, The Native Experience in Books for Children. And this is put together by Dr. Debbie Reese, but the actual article is by a woman named Beverly Slapin, and she talks exactly to this point, and she says, this series of stories taking place in 1764 could have been worse which you know is is like maybe like not the exact, you know, re- resounding praise that you hope to see. Um, but part of what I appreciate is it was helping me understand kind of to your point, what of this really is accurate and kind of speaks to a certain perspective. Something that she taught me is that it is anachronistic to use the word TP in the context of this book, and and that is used quite a lot. Um, And she talks about like naming conventions of the time period and like different ways that the book gets certain things right or wrong. There's also an element of disability in this book. Kaya has a sister who is blind. And in this article, she says, quote, speaking rain as all native children would have been taught to take care of herself. And that is a huge divergence from the book where a lot of the relationship building in this story is around Kaya learning to be sort of less boastful, learning how to manage her horse and learning how to race, and also ultimately saving this young woman who is her sister from drowning. And it's not that this woman is helpless in the book, but she gets herself into several situations over the course of the book, not having a grip on how to exist. And this author is saying, you know, that's not really how this would have been treated in that community. So we open with Kai and her family arriving in a in the encampment area where they would be traveling to take part in salmon fishing and then dry the fish for their food supply through the winter or at least until they get to um, the next area of encampment where they would be doing like bison hunting and whatnot. And as like a hunter-gatherer people, like this is where we're opened up on. So Kaya and her pa- her parents, Brown Deer, her sister, she has two twin brothers, Wingfeather and Sparrow, um, her parents and Speaking Rain, as you've mentioned. And they're approaching like their uncle, aunts, and her grandparents who come out to greet them. And then really like these are the main characters. It's like this family, this unit of kinship. But what's interesting is like, so immediately um, we learn that Kaya has a horse called Steps High to whom she's very attached. And she's, we learn that she thinks like this horse is really fast and can race, but she's been told not to race the horse. And of course, immediately someone's like, do you want to race your horse? And she's like, of course, absolutely. Her mom is like, as we've discussed, do not do this. Like you are not skilled enough. You have not practiced. This horse is young and untrained. And her dad is like described as like a very skilled horseman. And he like reiterates what the mother has said. And she's like, I hear you. I respect you. Like totally understood. She says hi to her grandparents and then is off with like friends. And someone goads her, like barely goads her. And she's like, yep, let's race. Let's do this. And she has been told to watch her two twin brothers. And she like passes that responsibility to Speaking Rain. So that's the first of two times in this book where not only is Speaking Rain not entrusted to care for herself, but she's actually entrusted with, it's like she's both not trusted to care for herself, but Kaya also entrusts her to care for other people at the same time. 
Oh, yeah. Kaya is really given a lot to take on and also suffers consequences when she doesn't, you know, match up to what people want her to do. I do want to say that in the front piece where we have the the illustrations, Steps High is directly opposite Kaya. And it's like, if you miss Felicity, (laughs) that energy is back. And I also appreciate the sort of perspective. So Raven and Foxtail, who are tangential characters in this story, but there's foreshadowing that some of these folks will be more important. Raven is just a boy who loves horses. So they're like, he's a horse boy. Foxtail is bothersome. And then Brown Deer, Brown Deer, Kaya's sister, who is old enough to court. And they're like, don't ask how old that is. Just know that it's enough. She's old enough. They're like, she's yeah. old enough. And basically the only other thing you learn about Kaya uh, in the chapter where there is a courting dance is Kaya's like, I'm not old enough, but I can feel the beat because she's discouraged from participating, but she still wants to dance. Um, oh my God. That was actually my favorite scene in the book because yeah. it brought me back to, this might've also been 2002, maybe 2001, but you know, I don't know if Janet was like, had an Us Weekly subscription or like what was going on, but there was an alleged dance-off that took place between Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake at a club where she confronted him on the dance floor. And I'll just credit her with a win. I don't remember how this actually went down and and who was believed to have won. But the dance that she describes, um, which is obviously a different dance and part of the Nez Perce culture, is like a courting dance where basically like girls and boys, men and women in this dance who are old enough to court, they can both signal within the dance if they're interested in a member of the opposite sex. And I love this because basically it's like, at a certain point in the dance, men and women start to dance next to the person that they're interested in. And if a boy dances near you and you don't like him, he like puts his stick, an actual stick, let me just be clear, an actual stick on your shoulder. You can just knock the stick off and basically be like, it's not you. Like, I'm not I'm not interested in you. And this chapter in like pure Shaw fashion honestly has everything because you're kind of lulled into a false sense of security of like, oh, we're basically at you know, this, this like amazing, like community gathering and we're learning about how courting works and she's kind of getting curious. And then I think in a really smart and authentic way, we learn from Allah, who is her grandmother about like really the family history. And I kind of was chuckling at this because, you know, in a different context, my mom will also do this where my nephews will be playing Legos and she'll be like, um, do you know that your great, 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 great grandfather, um, you know, died of scarlet fever? And they're like, <laughs> huh? I didn't, you know, I, I was not aware of that. But the grandmother in a really beautiful way, and I think in a really smart way for the series, introduces the fact that she suffered from smallpox, I think is what you're meant to deduce from this because she has pox on her face and that this is how she lost her mother. And I think in a way that's just really brilliantly woven into the way that human relationships can be, Kaya is kind of struggling with different things. She's being told that she's too boastful. She's not really into the babysitting. She wants to race her horse and she's being discouraged from that. Um, Direct quote from her, she's the best horse ever. Want to race me right now, which I feel like is more uh, recess or playtime dialogue than uh, of a Nez Perce, but who am I to say? And 
the grandmother just kind of weaves in so wonderfully this family history while Kaya is literally weaving and is like learning about all these different traditions in her family. And I think that's where some of the trans historical pieces of when you're young, you don't always appreciate that you're in a moment of learning about your family. And I love reading this as an adult for the first time. We're getting this like really tremendous insight into what happened to this culture. And I don't think it's done as like a clumsy foreshadowing of, and there'll be more disease and there'll be conflict and there'll be war, but it's just kind of woven into their discussion. Like, this is what happened to my mother and this is what happened to me. And this is why my face looks this way. And I thought that scene was just really smart. Yeah, I think that scene was really, really smart because it too, it shows us like one, this is a world in which there's many different artifacts of history. Like it's both the pockmarks on your grandmother's face. It's the weaving that you're doing with your own hands and undoing and redoing in concert with other women in your kinship group, in your family. It's the horse training that you've learned. It's the dances that you perform perhaps with a future partner or just other people in your group. Like it's the games you play. The father's described as playing games with other men. Like, and so you just see her like trying to struggle to kind of soak in all of these different, you know, things to which she's exposed that explain also different kinds of storytelling for different purposes. So like you have, you know, like her parents telling her stories about themselves, like the father shares a story about training horses, like in that he also had to be patient as he was learning and developing his skills because she's very impatient to be a master horsewoman. But also with the grandmother, there's the storytelling to for a purpose, which is that she gets this nickname that she doesn't like, which is, I think, magpie for, for being prideful about... Um, racing the horse and you know all of these things and all of the children get punished when she races the horse and asks speaking rain to kind of be in charge of caring for the younger brothers when it was her responsibility they wander off and she has to find them and it turns out her aunt recognizes her carelessness and it's just a tradition um in this group that like if one child is going to be punished everyone's going to be punished and so they all are which is actually a very striking and upsetting scene And after this, like, she gets this nickname that associates her with behavior that she has kind of been trained to be embarrassed about, I think. Like, we see her be prideful and not really have a problem with it until she realizes it's distracted her from this responsibility. But I think that there's a messiness there where you kind of lose the thread on, like, what was actually supposed, what was she supposed to take from this, like, in terms of storytelling. I think the story that she received was, you should be ashamed for being prideful, when actually I think there's a more nuanced story that her grandmother or someone else in this world could have shared with her, which is, like, there's a meaningful difference between being pride, being irresponsible and also having a healthy sense of self-possession. So I actually don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I'm good at this. Because that can actually like be healthy, I think, especially to young girls who would be reading this book at a time, frankly, still when, you know, you're in school and more boys are comfortable raising their hands than young women. Like, I I actually think that that's a problem or a misstep with the plot of this book. I think it's not surprising, though, to further that point 
because this is giving me a lot of reminders of these other stories that we've read. A lot of times, one of the underlying thrusts of these books is you can be really good at things that serve others. And she is encouraged to feel proud and happy when she is able to rescue her sister from the rushing water. And she is given credit for the fact that she has this better command of her horse. And I think part of what you're supposed to take from that is she wouldn't have been able to do that if she hadn't been sort of like humbled and pushed back. But Mm. then this adult part of me thinks, yeah, but if she wasn't confident, she wouldn't have been able to actually like save this person's life. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. And I think there's a piece of this that kind of comes into this, which is like, we do get a sense of the spiritual world in this book. We are with the family as they basically give thanks and offer thanksgiving in the form of a kind of grace prayer before a meal, shared meal to the creator for creating all the food and for bringing, you know, like keep driving the life force and so on. So like she not only has a sense of like herself and the family, but herself in like this larger world, spiritual world of which she's a part. And, you know, I do think that there's some piece of a spiritual story where you do have to be humble and assign your gifts to a higher power or to a sense that like you're not in this by yourself. But I do think there has to be like, as you're saying, some middle road, because I don't think she would have had the confidence to just jump in and save her sister and know that she could actually do this really dangerous thing of driving her horse, which had almost bucked her the last time that she tried to like ride him in a very stressful situation and trust that that wasn't going to happen and ride him in the middle of a rushing river and try to catch her sister who was caught in the river, like a rushing river. It takes a lot of confidence to do that. And I think she is commended for that. But in a way, like how is that different than what she was doing in the beginning of the book, except that it was in the service of her sister? I'm going to say this, the horse's the horse thinks of itself as a main character. Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> I think, you know, you see those videos where it's like, she's a main character. Like, this person knows they're a main character. This horse is like, I know. And I was clued into this by a listener named Colette who said that it was okay to share this because we got messaging a bit about Kaya. And Colette, you know, just mentioned... um, they're actually from, she's actually from New Mexico and mentioned that, you know, she and people in her community made tribal regalia for her Kaya. And that Kaya kind of has this obviously complicated relationship where she offers a kind of representation, but not everything is right. And not Mm. everything is obviously from an indigenous perspective, but she pointed out the fact that making Kaya from a horse culture was a very deliberate choice because it situates her in a very specific place within indigenous history. And I said, honestly, I would have never thought of that. Like, Mm. I think we have obviously talked extensively about Felicity as a horse girl, and that's a very different context. But thinking about over a 200 or so year period, the extent to which horses revolutionized a continent, I'm not going to go far on a Rhode Island place, but I am going to mention the Narragansett Pacer was a huge part of the global slave trade. Look it up. I'm just going to say. But 
Colette pointed this out to me that, you know, situating her in a horse culture was a choice. And Beverly Slapin, who wrote this really wonderful article that we'll link to, says, by setting these books in 1764, before white encroachment, Mm. the author and publisher were able to sidestep the nasty parts of what happened. And I think that's an important point. Like, it's this really interesting middle ground that they chose of there's evidence of contact between people by the evidence of the horses and the pox, but like the worst has not happened yet. Well, and also the worst that's happened is in distant. I think it's important that the grandmother's um, pox marks are a real from a really distant experience with that disease. If we had seen white settlers come into their community and infect the grandmother with smallpox and then leave, I think it would have been far easier for the audience to humanize and frankly villainize the encroachment of whiteness into this albeit fictional but based on real events community. And I think that that was a conscious choice to both, like as you're saying, not have it too much further in the future because I think it was um, Lewis and Clark, right? That are the first white encounters that the Nez Perce have. And so I think, you know, traditionally, not hopefully recently, but people have valorized Lewis and Clark as like these brave explorers and whatever, instead of like being imperialists and colonialists. But I think they're trying to have it both ways. Like they don't want to villainize or really too quickly go hard against like a former historical interpretation of this, which frankly did center white people. But they also don't want to villainize white people. They kind of want to have it both ways. I'll just never get there with Lewis and Clark. I'll never get there with Lewis and Clark. Did you read that article where they were like... There, we can map them because there was mercury in their waste. Yeah, and it's just like, I think we've just given them way too much time in an ineffective way. And I was watching a video recently and they were discussing just how young the indigenous, the few indigenous women that get talked about all the time. And I apologize because I don't remember where I saw this, but it was talking about the fact that Pocahontas was a girl. Sacagawea was a little girl and the way that these people are talked about as if they are 45 year old women who have agency and autonomy fully of their own and able to take command of these situations it's it's not real (laughs) um no and i think it's always sort of like all of these histories position indigenous people as being supportive characters or like needing to be saved by the white people who they happen to encounter. So it's like it both infantilizes the women in these stories, but also it 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 kind of glosses over the fact that they are literally children in a lot of these cases. And, you know, it's 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 extremely off-putting and I think if you you're not actually doing some kind of research into the age of these folks, you might easily be taken in by these narratives. Like these re- these narratives have lasted for so long because they're so seductive. Like white people love reading stories in which they're the hero. Like no one wants to be complicated, have a complicated feeling about like, oh wow, we came in and like literally decimated these ancestral lands and took them and have never in a meaningful way reckoned with that. Like that's absolutely true of the Nez Perce people. And, and I do think horses, in fact, like I do think I'm coming around on the placement of... Um, 
I did forget the horse's name, like no disrespect, steps high. But having steps high in the center of the vignette portraits actually makes more sense to me as we're talking because horses are so significant, especially to the Nez Perce people. Like, in fact, the U.S. government funded a program in the 1990s to encourage like a horsemanship program among the Nez Perce people because it's so foundational to their culture. And it was um, taken from them in the 1890s or discouraged as part of like the turn towards reservations and and so on, which I'm sure we will talk more about. But, you know, it's just, it feels shady. And I don't want to put it all on Janet Shaw, but, you know, what would Meet Kaya have been like, excuse me, even if it was set in 1805, which was roughly around the time that they encountered Lewis and Clark. And I think there was experimentation with that, you know, just four or five years earlier in the context of the Josefina books, where Mm. I think there was a lot more foreshadowing, a lot more determinism in those books where Josefina's story really builds to United States contact. And there's the moment where she sees the flag and she's sort of emotional, but her story always feels kind of inevitable, right? That there's going to be this kind of aggressive enveloping of the place that she lives into what becomes the United States. Something that I think is kind of different, and I think we could read different layers onto it, is this does really exist outside of that timeline in some ways, right? Like you don't feel necessarily like it. there's this inevitability that this is going to become Idaho. <laughs> right. I mean... Does Idaho ever ever feel inevitable? I don't know. I don't. I mean, Idaho. I don't know. I don't know. Wow. And just to give you a sense of scale, I went to the website of the Nez Perce tribe because I wanted to understand. And I've ordered a bunch of books. I want to really learn a lot more. And people have sent us resources for us to also get into. Uh, but this group of people encompass land that is now part of Canada, but also Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and Montana. And if you read the piece that came out in The Atlantic this week, that was about restoring natural lands, national park lands to indigenous people for whom they are sacred and they are the owners of those lands. I think part of what gets lost in a lot of these conversations is that article mentions the transfer of 90 million acres of land and thinking about the fact that this reservation is 770,000 acres for this one particular group. The land theft of the 19th century and into the 20th and 21st centuries is so staggering when you Mm -hmm. actually, and there's a map that you can scroll over. When you actually look at these maps, you know, you're not talking about people, you know, we've read probably 30 books on the pilgrims who covered the equivalent of a suburban neighborhood. (laughs) And yet this is a group of people who have existed uh, for tens of thousands of years, really for all time. And they cover these tens, hundreds of thousands of acres. And it's like, this is 60 pages. Yeah. I mean, you know, so we do have to kind of appreciate scale in both directions. Like you can't appreciate the staggering scale of how much land was stolen from Native peoples. And also we have to be realistic about the scale of this being a 60-page book for children that can't have the nuance of, say, like maybe the histories that we would like. All to say, though, that, I mean, I do think that some nuance is possible. I think I'm interested to see where this goes because it seems like there's too much leaning on, like, a utopian vision of, 
indigenous culture that doesn't seem grounded in actual humanity. Even her hijinks feel a little bit um, almost caricature, like overdone to the point that it doesn't seem actually humanized to me as reading this book for the first time. So I'm kind of interested to kind of see where we go with that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm nervous. I'm nervous because Janet took us right in with a near death with stories of disease. And I just kept thinking, okay, we have been down this road with her before, but we were kind of placated with birthday parties and kittens. Our next book is Kaya's Escape, a survival story. And I thought, my word, we are really going into it. And something that I have read in commentary and criticisms about the series is that the peek into the past sections are rather uneven. That's a word that Beverly Mm. Slapin uses. And something I was really hoping for with this peek into the past would be real insight into the kind of experience that a person roughly of Kaya's age would have had. And I think in an attempt to tell a richer story about indigenous people generally, it really reads like a straight historical narrative. Whereas coming off of Molly, it was like Molly would have had roller skates. And I felt like those got very granular about a very specific kind of person in a specific place and period of time. And maybe to kind of get more right, these peaks into the past are just very big. They're huge. Like, it's like the biggest narrative arcs you can imagine about Native American experience, where it's like a shift from um, treaties to reservations, like these giant arcs that appear in a lot of textbooks. Photographs play a giant role in this. And I actually was thinking there should be some acknowledgement about sort of photographs themselves as a colonizing Mm. force, which I think play a really different role in this. They landed on me very differently in this peek into the past than they do in any of the others, frankly, like taking photographs of Native American people for entertainment purposes, photographing sacred acts, sacred objects without knowledge or permission, um, translating sacred documents. Like these are all things going on in in this time, different print technologies and photographic technologies that I think are very different than when they're being used to support kind of meta narratives of mostly previously white characters. So it's interesting that there's no acknowledgement there. No, I do want to point out something that I think is important about this peek into the past is the fact that it acknowledges that people in this tribe are living in these areas. They are still around. They are still part of the culture. And I think that is something that if this book had been written 10 years earlier, it would have been put out there as if there was kind of an extinction narrative, which I think is also, if we're being honest, what was very common in the 1990s, this kind of presupposition that indigenous people were no longer part of the world that we live in because I think it made it more palatable to put the violence really far in the past. And just to like point out something that I think is important, where did you get your COVID vaccine? I got mine at Mohegan Sun Casino in the Pequod Nation. I kept thinking while I was reading this about the different biological histories, right, of this continent and the ways in which, you know, many, many people died often on purpose, right? Like they were they were killed through biological agents. Some of it was just, you know, germs and things moving around, but the kind of proverbial smallpox blanket. And then thinking about the fact that 
the tribal lands throughout the United States where they've had surplus or like any opportunity to provide other people in the United States with their supply, they have opened their doors, which is so not what (laughs) non-Indigenous people deserve. And yet so amazing to think of in light of this is 1760s and we're hearing a family intergenerational conversation about disease cut to 2021 and you hear about reservations in other parts of the country as well where any surplus people are being taken in and taken care of it's like we don't deserve that we absolutely don't deserve that and to get to your point it's like it's particularly galling that in the 90s and so on we get all these narratives of like kind of supposed extinction of Native Americans in these areas because the people living there and frankly everywhere don't want to deal with it. And it's sort of a an awful flip of an earlier presupposition, which is that when white people arrived, they were empty lands. And if you think that narrative isn't still with us, please check out the cover of David McCullough's The Pioneers, which came out, was that last year, Allison? It was too recent. It might have been 2019, but very <laughs> might have been recent. 2019. I was thinking it might be 2019, but basically the the approach of his book and in, in writing about this period is of kind of a, a an assumption of empty lands that Native Americans weren't there, that these acts of violence didn't happen, and you know I think that that's something that it's worth just kind of really hammering home here because. In a way, it's like Janet Shaw has flipped it and given us empty lands of just this um, Nez Perce group. And there's no other white people there, but there's also no other Native American groups with which we see them interacting either. And I think that that's an interesting point, thinking about things like Comanche Empire and books we've mentioned in the past, which actually get at the nuance of like only seeing this as a binary of like white people versus Native American groups that you miss the power dynamics between and within Native American culture itself. But also I think missing from this book, so it's like that's one piece, but also there's no class story in this book either. And I think in a lot of the other American Girl books, you can locate you can locate the class of the American Girl. And I think it's really interesting to think about kind of the economies that we are and are not seeing here and also the larger economic context of this, which is that, you know, as you're saying, you can buy, you could buy a horse to go with your Kaya doll. There's all of these accoutrement, but it's all within a system that actually, you know, took from the Nez Perce people. So it's sort of getting us back to those Addy conversations. Like, what does it mean to purchase a Kaya doll? What are you participating in? And like, what are the complications of that? Even as you might like genuinely, because I was looking at the Kaya stuff earlier today and it's genuinely beautiful. Like I would love to buy all of that stuff, but it's sort of like, is it fraught? Like, what does this all mean? So I was reading that. So there are different changes around the Be Forever era. For example, Addie's meat dress becomes a different dress. And I read a footnote on the American Girl Wiki, and I'll need to do some more digging into this, that the Kaya meat dress was not changed in the same way because it was considered disrespectful to sell certain things separate from like the doll personhood of the Kaya. So I would love to hear from people who could, you know, speak more eloquently to what that would mean or why exactly that decision was made. And just to also say, you know, part of what we're going to be talking about over the next five books with Kaya, you know, just like all of them is different critical perspectives. But to also say Kaya was 
a pathway for lots of people who've written to us and they do tend to be people who are just a bit younger than us oh my god i sound like the lady in mean girls like i'm a cool mom but um <laughs> how old are you again <laughs> so people for whom you know listener Catherine shared with us a while back that her father took her on an entire trip through Idaho because she really wanted to go to museums and she wanted to see the place that Kaya was from. And I think that's always the tension with this, right? Like it is this actual pathway into learning about people who aren't like you and aren't like your life. Yes. And this is where then we think of the indigenous scholars who would, I think, likely say, okay, but let us tell that story. Yeah, 100%. And also let us tell that story on our terms. And in the structures that we designate, like I'm kind of wondering like if an indigenous scholar had been given the opportunity to tell this story, you know, I know that this is breaking the mold of the traditional six arc books that we've had so far, but, you know, would they have changed the arc in a different way? You know, would the narrative look somewhat different? And it just reminds me too of larger things that are happening right now where there's this tension that these books are making us think about of like, the obvious benefit of sharing out indigenous history so that more people are exposed to it and can celebrate it and appreciate it, but also sort of like the autonomy and the personhood of indigenous culture to kind of own their own narratives and their own stories and their own histories, which in some cases involve indigenous folks saying like, no, this is for us. Like, we're not sharing this out with you just because you want to see it or hear it. And I'm thinking particularly about the Passamaquoddy people had their traditional dances and songs recorded by a white anthropologist in the early 20th century. And those reels have just been digitized by the Library of Congress. But interestingly, they're working with that group to designate like which are actually sacred spiritual content that's just for the tribe and what can be publicly accessible. So I think that kind of conversation was probably maybe not part of the conversations around creating Kaya. And I wonder if that would have changed things at all. I think we have five more books to find out. Like, I'm I'm really excited to keep going with Kaya. And I think we've also, you know, much like the brand, this is different for us. This is different for us. And, you know, it's kind of exciting. It's like, I really don't know where this is going. I'm kind of going back to my Josefina days, which I also didn't know what was going on with that. And I really enjoyed it. So it'll be good. The one thing I know for sure from this book is that you and I would not survive because all of the food preparation required a lot of know-how that you and I do not have, just in a general sense, and the technology that you and I need to survive. But we learned that we would make good friends like Kaya. I think we did learn that. I think that's fair, but I don't know if like the horsewomanship is really in my future based on so, what I've just read or like the food preparation. Like, I don't think I can, I would ever understand how to dry a salmon. I'll just say that. Like, is there a micro? I know it's like, Pat, you should never microwave fish. I know that. But it's like in our personal home ec wheelhouse, like that's what we throw to. What would we do? So I was on a high thinking. I actually have something in common with Kaya because her full name refers to a moment, according to like the Kaya canon, that her mother sees someone working with rocks around the time of her birth. And that's the origin of her full name. And my surname is people from the place of the rocks in English. So I'm thinking, wow, me and Kaya are really going to be, you know, in this together. And then I read on the Indigenous Scholars blog that that is absolutely not a thing. So... <laughs> My family is from a place that was very rocky. 
this explanation was very rocky. I was going to say, this is sort I of thought a rocky we had start. That. I thought we had that. We do not. However, now you also know the meaning of my surname. And I wow. use my first and my last name as all of my handles. That's all I wow. have. Wow. What a transition. Thank what a you. beautiful transition. Wow. Um, so I guess we'll just say, like, we're very excited to see where this is going. You know, I don't know if this book, these books will have the chaos of other parts of 2002 that we referred to earlier. You know, we're going to find out. We're very excited. And if you know of any other books that we should be reading as we go on our Kaya journey, if you yourself are a member of the Nez Perce and would love to share your experience or your fierce feedback about the series, we would love to speak from speak to you and hear from you. Um, you know, we're very open. Like, I want to read other children's books that center Indigenous children's experiences. Like, I'm really excited to just get into this whole era, this whole part of our journey, Allison. So I'm very excited to see where we go next. Me too. And if people want to find you, where should they find you? So on Instagram, you can find me at Mimi Mahoney. And on Twitter, I'm at Mary Mahoney123. We can also be reached on the show accounts, which is a girls pod on Twitter and American Girls Podcast on Instagram. We love when you send us things and occasionally that meme will go back around of in 25 years, there will be now 24 years, uh, an American girl who lives through the pandemic. I don't care how many times you send it to us. I will still find it funny. I will still laugh and tell you that we interviewed Caroline Moss. So keep sending those kinds of things our way. Yeah, and go check out our interview with Caroline Moss, which is a previous episode of the show where we play the catalog game, which is very fun. We all get a standard amount of money and have to pick our own wish list from vintage American Girl catalogs. Thanks also to everyone who supports our Patreon. We so appreciate you. This month of April, we are reading and talking about a classic Dear America set in a Shaker community. Oh my God. And we all attended a Lois Lowry conversation well, it was supposed to be a conversation. I don't know what it ended up being with Brother Arnold, one of the last living shakers at Sabbath Day Lake in Maine, where Allison and I have been. So we're very excited to share that with those of you who are supporters there. We have a great Discord community. We're adding channels all the time. People have great convos there. I learn a lot. You know, just to say, like, we had a great conversation about the Taylor Swift re-release this week. A lot of good stuff happening. So thanks to all of you who are members of this community. We so appreciate you. And we're really looking forward to the next episode. Thank you. Bye.